0: Our sermon today is taken from Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. Here is the word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire home where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Thus says the Lord. Let us
1: pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we confess, Lord, that we are in a situation of fear, perhaps anger and anxiety. Lord, we grieve about what's been happening all around us in our nation. We grieve about the suffering and sadness that's all around us. We pray, Lord, that as we come to your word today, that by your Holy Spirit, we can focus on your word and what it wants to say to us, that it may encourage us and counsel us to navigate these difficult times. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and soften our hearts that we may really receive your word as you are. And bless our servant, Father, that his foolishness may not get in the way of your word being preached and that your gospel may be received by your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One word that describes how this pandemic has made me feel is powerless. Because it feels like there's this unstoppable force that threatens us and we can't do anything about it. Whatever we do, wherever we go, we cannot fully escape or overcome this awful situation that's greatly limited our lives. And this is a seriously uncomfortable feeling, right? At some point that's made me resentful of the people around me and the authorities above me, blaming them for not taking care of this situation properly and putting us in this awful position. Maybe even bitter about my own life because the plans that I've made and the goals that I've set often look like they're going to fail and they're all for nothing through no apparent fault of my own and I couldn't stop it or prevent it, right? This disease is really oppressive. Now, I think it's fair to say though, if you read the Bible, most of the time God's people were living under a similar and I would say probably worse form of powerlessness. Israel's greatest hope, in fact, is that they would possess the land they would live in, that God has given them. So they could be a nation who was able to together worship God freely, to glorify his name and enjoy his presence. And this was not just some pipe dream or fantasy, but it was a genuine expectation. Because our God, the Lord, creator of heaven and earth himself, had promised them this through his prophets. But by the time of the apostles, this all seemed rather far-fetched. The people of Israel were scattered across the world. The land of Israel was occupied by the most powerful empire in the history of the world at that point. And the people that remained in the land of Israel, they were living a muted and lesser shadow of what life could be, what it really for them should be. So can any of us relate to what Israel might be feeling at this time? I could. Life should be so much better, but it simply can't be right now. So this question is then, how can we as Christians not grow bitter and resentful when we feel powerless where we are, like we're feeling now? I think our text can give us some wisdom about that. So today we'll be continuing our series on the book of Acts and we'll be studying a passage that is one of the climactic events in the biblical story. So just to position us there, At this point of the story, the ultimate solution to God's people's powerlessness has already come. The person of Jesus Messiah, who was promised by the prophets, will restore God's people and make God's promises come true has already come. He's been even crucified and was raised from the grave as written from the scriptures. So the disciples of Christ at that point would be expecting that, well, this is going to be it. This is going to be the time when Israel will be liberated and their faith shall be saved. This is what the question in chapter 1 verse 6 expresses. Right? Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? But contrary to what they might have expected, the risen Lord did not raise up an army and overthrow Rome and liberate Israel. Instead, in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised his disciples that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And our text in chapter 2, verse 113, is an account of how they first received this power. And from it, you can learn at least three things about Holy Spirit power. Our three points. Point one, what Holy Spirit power does to us. Point two, what Holy Spirit power does through us. And point three, the world's response to Holy Spirit power. Let me repeat that. Point one, what Holy Spirit power does to us. Point two, what Holy Spirit power does through us. And point three, the world's response to Holy Spirit power. All right, let's get into it. Now, point one, what Holy Spirit power does to us. Now, when we study narratives in the Bible, such as the book of Acts, we must first realize that the author puts in details in these brief accounts very intentionally, right? Nothing is written there by accident. And Luke here intentionally puts details that we might miss that are actually references to events in the Old Testament in order to communicate something extremely important. Okay, so the next few minutes might feel a bit technical and lectury, but bear with me as I unpack this. It's important. So what details does Luke highlight for us first in verse 1? That what he's about to describe here is happening on the day of Pentecost. Now this has both logistical and theological significance. Right? Logistically, Pentecost is the day when Jerusalem was exceptionally crowded. Jerusalem was where all this took place. Scholars believe that Jerusalem's population could have sextupled on that day, right, six times the normal amount. And this is because Pentecost was actually the day of one of the three annual Jewish pilgrimage festivals, the, fist, the festival of Shaviot. And the word Pentecost actually just means 50th in Greek because Shaviot was celebrated seven weeks and one day after the previous pilgrimage festival, Passover. And during Shaviot, Jews would travel through Jerusalem from wherever it is in the world that they live in order to go to the temple and worship there and make their religious duties. So this makes it logistically possible for the extraordinary events in this narrative to happen, which we'll get into more later. Theologically, though, right now, in Jewish tradition, the festival of Shabayot is actually meant to commemorate another climactic event in the history of Israel, when God gave Israel his laws in Mount Sinai. Now, why would this be important? Well, if you recall what happened in this story, um, which we can read in Exodus 19, Israel had just been freed from slavery, from Pharaoh and Egypt, by the miraculous acts of God, by the mighty acts of God right? The very thing that was celebrated in the festival that preceded Passover. And as the story goes, God led Israel through the Red Sea into Mount Sinai, where supernaturally God makes an appearance. And there on Mount Sinai, through the giving of the law, God renews the covenant he made with Israel and officially makes them his nation, makes them God's people. So likewise, the miraculous work of Christ on the cross, which by the way happened on Passover, had freed us, God's people, from our ultimate oppressor, sin. And now a similar thing is happening as what happened in Mount Sinai. That after freeing us through Jesus, God is making a special appearance and is recreating his people. So supernatural events that's described in verses two to four further illustrates this. That this is an appearance of the very presence of God amongst the apostles. So let's look at the two details uh, Luke gives to describe this event. First, in verse 2, that there is a mighty rushing wind. And second, in verse 3, that there are tongues of fire. Now, if we do a survey of the Old Testament, we can notice that whenever God's presence makes an appearance and settles on a holy space, it always appears in the form of a storming wind and a fire. Let me, let's start a few examples here to prove it to you. Right, in Exodus 3, God shows up to Moses in the form of a fire in the story of the unburning bush. The aforementioned Mount Sinai episode, right, what's there? A storm and a pillar of fire. When God first settled into the tabernacle in Exodus 40, what was there? When in fire. If you look at uh, the dedication service of Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles 7, what shows up when God shows up? Wind and fire, the vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 43 of God's glory filling the temple. Guess what? Wind and fire was there, right? I could go on, but I think we all get the point here, right? That what was happening in Jerusalem that day was that there was a manifestation of the divine presence that's settling somewhere. Now, if you were Jews who studied the Old Testament day and night, this was huge, Because the presence of God in his holy pace was dangerous for sinners in the Old Testament. Moses wasn't allowed to come too close to the burning bush. Israel was told not to even touch the mountain lest they be killed. Even Moses, who got closest to the presence of God, couldn't see him face to face. And if anyone enters the temple of God, which is filled with his presence unworthily, they would die what happens in our text, right, in verse 4? It says they were filled by the Holy Spirit. That the presence of God did not settle into an inanimate space, but it settled on the very body. It filled the very bodies of the followers of Christ. And just like the burning bush wasn't consumed by the fire, but the fire descended on them and rested. Brothers and sisters, to the Jewish reader. Luke could not be more clear. What was going on here is that God's presence is no longer limited to a temple space like it was in the time of Israel, but it is now dwelling personally with his people. God's holy space is now the people of God who have found their identity in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Brothers and sisters, this was a revolutionary idea. Look, because... Now, God is with us. So this has huge implications for us. First of all, as God's temple, we are supposed to be purified. In the Old Testament, to enter God's sacred space meant that there were supposed to do uh, all sorts of ritual purifications, to keep anything having to do with sin and death out. Likewise, God's New Testament temple is called to be these representatives of God's holiness. We are called to a new way of life that is free from sin in every aspect of our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 reminds us that being God's temple means that we are not our own. That our bodies is where the Holy Spirit dwells and we are God's because God has bought us with a price. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 6 actually clarifies how sexual immorality is a corruption that has no place in God's holy space. Further, 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us to rid ourselves from all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, and to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That because we are made holy and have been set apart by God, any sort of behavior that ruins people and destroys relationship has no place there either. The New Testament emphatically teaches that being God's temple means our lives are to be reshaped so as to be worthy of being God's home. And secondly, friends, a major implication is that being God's temple means that there ought to be profound unity among us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul rebukes the church for breaking a between him and Apollo, saying that since we are all God's temple, we must no longer destroy each other because God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple. And in Ephesians 2, it reminds us that being God's temple means that we are all fellow citizens, that we're all members of the same household, in fact, reminding us that above all, there should be solidarity between Christians, having unity that is built upon what Jesus had done for us. And how important is this right now, friends? Because the only thing worse than feeling powerless is feeling powerless and alone. Like we have to go through this all ourselves and we have to bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. But the Bible here is clearly telling us that we are not alone. Not only that we have the Holy Spirit with us, but we have each other. So if you're struggling right now, please reach in, take advantage, of being part of the family of God. But how miserably, really, have we failed at this, friends? Instead of being honored that the King of Kings and the Creator of heaven and earth Himself would dwell with us, instead of cleaning up ourselves out of respect for Him, we continuously desecrate God's holy space with our filthy sins. While at the same time, instead of cherishing and taking care of the people who are also his, we sanctimoniously look down on them and create divisions between those who God says is part of our family, completely disrespecting the one who owns the brothers and sisters who we mock and often scoff at. This must not be friends. And we must repent and make every effort to be purified on a personal level and unified on a communal level. Because what the Holy Spirit does to us is that it makes us a unified representatives of God's holiness, the very vessels of his presence. And so, as God's new temple, not only are we changed, but we are also assigned a very important task. To be the ones who make God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? which is point two what Holy Spirit power does through us. Let's look again at verse four. Luke describes a very curious thing that happened after the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak in other tongues or foreign tongues. Now, this passage has been subject to some controversy over the past century, specifically with regards to the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. And sorry, to... Disappoint the younger foreman and restless here. Uh, we will not be discussing the gift of tongues and whether or not that's still a thing. But shameless plug though, Tazar, myself, and a couple of other pastors who don't all agree on the same subject had a lively discussion about this on our program, The Tamu, last year. So if you're really curious about it check, it, check it out. It's on the CCC YouTube channel, along with tons of other resources that you can find online that will do a better job in helping you think about this than I can in 40 minutes. Whatever you think about the gift of tongues though, there's actually quite a bit in this passage that we can agree on, right? Namely that first of all, the tongues here in a specific instance, res- refers to an actual intelligible human language, right? Not some spooky angelic language. How do you know this? Well, because in verses six and 11, it specifically says that the people who heard what they're saying, understood it in their own language without any interpreters, right? So the tongue's there, it's not angelic language, it is an actual human language. But nonetheless, this was an astonishing and supernatural event. So the question that we all should be asking is really, what was the point of God doing this at that particular time? Now, there are clues in the details of the passage that gives us an idea. Let's look at it. Luke goes on to say in verse 5 and meanwhile, there were a ton of people in Jerusalem. Why? As we discussed earlier, Pentecost. And these people heard what was going on in that house and they were astonished. But I want us to draw attention specifically to the way Luke describes the people who heard uh, these tongues in this account. That on one hand, in verse 1 and 11, the ones who heard them were specifically identified as Jews. Verse 5 calls them devout men. Verse 11 specifies that this included ethnic Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are those who are not ethnically Israel, but converted to Judaism at some point and joined the covenant community. And on the other hand, they came from every nation under heaven. And Luke goes even through trouble of listing 15 of these nations of where these people might have come from. And the list includes uh, places like modern-day Iran, Turkey, Italy, Egypt, from all, direc- from all directions in relation to Jerusalem, right? Luke was at length here trying to emphasize that they came from everywhere in the known world, that but, but they were Jewish by identity. And this is important, and it caught me off guard at first, right? Because I always thought that the people who were gathered there were multi-ethnic, but they're not. They're actually mono-ethnic, but perhaps multicultural. Now, why is this important, though? is that this is Luke's way of illustrating that what's going on here was actually the beginning of the fulfillment of a prophetic hope, something that the people of Israel had been waiting for since they were carried off into exile, the day where God will gather his people from where he scattered them. See, if we recall the book of Genesis from the very beginning, the result of human arrogance and self-exaltation because of sin is this scattering and banishment into exile. We saw it on a familial scale um, in the story of Cain and Abel where the descendants of Cain were exiled and scattered from their land because of sin. We saw it on a global scale in the story of the Tower of Babel and how God uh, confused human languages and divided and scattered them when they tried to rise up to be like God. Sorry, on a national scale when Israel, after repeatedly sinning against God, I after mean, he's given them so many chances and warning them so many times, God cast them out, out of their home into exile and scattered them across the world. But now, Luke is saying, the banishment and scattering is over. The curse of Babel is being reversed. And God's spirit is moving to unify and reconstitute his people, his holy nation once more. God here is creating a new Israel that the age of judgment is over. And the age of reconciliation has begun. Beginning with the devout Jews who held on to God's promises who were present there in Jerusalem. And as it was promised actually in places like Isaiah 11, which, If you read the list of nations from where God gathered his people there, it is remarkably similar uh, to the places where the people who witnessed the events of these texts come from. You see, friends, what was going on here was the answer to the disciples' question in chapter 1, verse 6. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples asked the Lord. They were basically asking, when will you fulfill the promises of the prophets? And the answer starting very soon, starting from when the Holy Spirit is poured out on his disciples, when they will witness people from the ends of the earth, uh, from the, ends of the, earth the greatness of God. They will witness to them. And on that day, 3,000 will come to believe in the Lord Jesus. And these con- converts will go back to where they came from to witness as well and call God's people who are still far off back into his kingdom. So what does this have to do with us? that what the Holy Spirit power is meant to do through us is to empower us to witness to the greatness of God, to preach the gospel to people from all nations, to call them to repentance and invite them to the fellowship of God's people, thereby participating in the coming of God's kingdom on earth that's already begun. This is what Peter was trying to say in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are made to be a holy nation, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To call those who were not a people to be God's people. To invite those who have not received mercy to receive mercy. See, this is our task here on earth. In fact, this is God's project here on earth until Jesus comes back. The Holy Spirit is now building his church, which the Lord himself says, the gates of hell will not prevail against. Right? We are his kingdom of priests, his holy nation under God's protection that will be with him forever in glory. Right? Like the Westminster Confession says, the mission of the church is to gather and perfect the saints. And this, friends, makes us powerful. Because you see, I think we all can agree that in order to be powerful, we need two things, a true understanding of reality and the resources to make things happen in it. And the Holy Spirit gives us both. And through the Holy Spirit, we can be aligned with God's agenda on earth right now, that above all else, what's going on in the world is that God's kingdom is coming. The purpose of everything is to be witnesses of God's glory and to call his people into his kingdom. This is the true reality of what's happening, the meta-reality. Because before Christ, it might have been to build ourselves and our kingdoms. Before we were in Christ, it might have been to accumulate wealth, fame, or experience more pleasure. But because the Holy Spirit has come, it must now be to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light because the reality has sunk in that this earthly life will end and all that we accumulate here will turn to dust. But the kingdom of God endures forever. And we have the resources to do this because, as we discussed before, the Holy Spirit dwells with us, purifying us, unifying us, and being with us, being present with us as we perform this task. So no matter how narrow the path, no matter the obstacle, no matter the circumstances, this program of God will not be stopped. And if we get with the program, we are powerful because we are not bound to despair about what is going on in the world, whatever it may be. Now, I understand that all this might get lost in the insanity of what's been going on in our country in the past 500 days, especially in the past month with bad news bombarding us daily and sadness is what we constantly witness. So I would argue then, this might be more important than ever for us to remember, right? That no matter what, God's kingdom is here. And if we are in Christ, we are part of it. And that the Holy Spirit is still with us no matter what happens, guiding us, perfecting us, comforting us bringing us to glory. So what can the pandemic do to us? See, brothers and sisters, the more we lose sight of that, the more powerless we feel in the face of this pandemic. The more we dwell in our losses, the more will we be crippled by fear and crushed by our hopelessness. But if we lay hold to the power of the Holy Spirit, we will purify ourselves and unite. And witness to the world defiantly by preaching the gospel to ourselves and our community and testifying to god's gracious generous love and compassion with our works and if we do this if we participate in this work of god we will see that despite everything there is still progress and that there has always been hope amen and this friends is going to be a fresh perspective, but a counterintuitive one in the eyes of the world, which is point three, the world's response to Holy Spirit power. Let us now turn to the last two verses of today's text, verses 12 and 13. Here, we can observe that there are two ways the world can respond to witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit. Either they'll be mesmerized by it, or they will mock it. See, friends, The gospel has a polarizing effect. That on the one hand, there would be some people, uh, like those in verse 12, who were amazed and perplexed by what they saw. They were able to see that what they saw was something remarkable, something supernatural happened here, something special. And though they couldn't understand it, this amazement led them to be curious and question, what is the meaning of all this? That they believed the word of the Holy Spirit which they witnessed was something attractive and meaningful. Right? They were mesmerized. But on the other hand, there are people who would respond like those in verse 13. Instead of seeing this remarkable thing as an act of God, they became cynical and dismissive, accusing the apostles and mocking them, saying that they were drunk with sweet wine. But this is something that is really to be expected by us and our gospel witness even to today. Because not everybody who hears the gospel message and witnesses the work of the Holy Spirit comes saving faith. Even if it is delivered by the best teacher in the most intelligent and eloquent way, not even everyone who experiences a miracle will see it as an act of God and believe. Why? Well, there could be only one thing, right? Sin. You see, the sinful heart of man is simply hardened towards God. It refuses with all its might to acknowledge God, to see him as holy. And it scares us because if God is real, right, it means that we would have to repent. It means that we might have to deal with the fact that we might have been living the wrong way. It means that we might have to give up some sins that we love and might have bring us comfort. It Might even mean that we have to distance ourselves or even disappoint certain people that we care about and we're close to. And it means that we have to be real with ourselves in order to face how truly broken we are. So if we think there's nothing real wrong with our lives, as it is, it really should not seem worth it. It wouldn't. In fact, it would seem foolish and weak that we need to believe in some myths to cope with reality. You see, friends, in this natural state, the sinful human heart will mock the work of the holy spirit see because how anyone even stands amazed at the witness of god's greatness is because the holy spirit had prepared our hearts beforehand right by god spiritually supernaturally revealing to us how much we actually need him how hopelessly lost we really are in our sins and how we truly need a savior. Only then will we want to humble ourselves before God and repent of our sins. Right? It's like what the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. So when those uh, whose hearts have been prepared by the Holy Spirit, encountered a Holy Spirit-empowered witness. They'll be moved not to be cynical and dismissive, but to be like the people in verse 12, right? To be at least for, at first attracted and curious about what they've seen. This curiosity is step one towards saving faith, right? So think about your own journey of faith. Isn't this how God called a lot of us at first? That somewhere along the way, we got close to some Christians and you saw or heard something that was interesting or compelling. And even though you didn't get it at first and even might be a little resistant, it seemed so undeniably compelling that you got further into it. And the more you got further into it, the more beautiful it seemed until finally we were ready to commit ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. This initial curiosity is all part of the journey of how the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ. Now, I highly doubt though, that most of us will ever be given a chance to uh, witness something as extraordinary as a group of people ecstatically speaking foreign languages they never learned, like what happened in Pentecost. But this does not mean that we cannot witness a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit or that it is impossible for us to miraculously witness the Holy Spirit, right? Because the greatest miracle of all is actually something that we might have taken for granted, which is how a sinner who loves sin, and the Bible describes as being spiritually dead, became spiritually alive and became lovers of righteousness. The testimony of our life, brothers and sisters, is a powerful witness of the Holy Spirit, power. But even then, not everyone will be able to get it. There will always be those haters who think that the gospel is nonsense and we're fooling ourselves or wasting our time. There will always be cynics who think that we are missing out because we refuse to do certain things and inconvenience ourselves for religious purposes. There will always be those who choose to see our flaws and wrongdoings rather than the way the Holy Spirit is renewing us. But we need not fear. Because whatever change that is in us is happening because of the Holy Spirit and not our own power. And it is the Holy Spirit who will empower our words, our deeds, our ministry to be effectual, to to be an effectual witness to those whom he called. We need not worry about those who reject us, but only to purify ourselves to be worthy hosts of the Holy Spirit that we may be more sensitive to Him and to be united to those who are also called by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, He will do the rest. Right? This is what relying on the Holy Spirit's power allows us to do. Right? That even such that, even though we are called to a difficult task in a hostile environment, we can really keep calm and carry on the Holy Spirit's got it, friends. So, brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is witnessing to you right now, if you're curious, and maybe you have been for a while, and you find a message of the gospel attractive, and you somehow sense that you might need the salvation it offers, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, and you will be saved. And you too, friends, will be purified and will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You too will be purified from your sins and be united with those who are saved. And you too can also be the vessels of God that will participate in God's kingdom coming and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you Lord that you would bother to purify us who are we Lord that you would want to dwell with us but you do you come and you have not only died for us and paid the penalty of our sins but you send your spirit to us to purify us and to be present with us whatever we're going through Father allow us to lay hold of this power allow us to use it as what we depend on in our lives. What's going on right now outside of us is hard. And we feel weak. But through you, Lord, we can get through it. Allow us to get onto your program. Empower us to love one another, to be your witnesses, that we may see that your will is still going to be done
0: and that your kingdom is still here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.